this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 59th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to share with you two important pieces of information. This week is Todd Conklin's birthday, and it's a very special birthday for Todd, and I wish him a very happy birthday from everyone in the New View community. We owe a lot to you, Todd, and your work and your wisdom that you continue to share with us on our journey of learning and improving. Thank you very much. The second piece of news is the release of the Learning From Everyday Work white paper with contributions from Todd Conklin, Brent Robinson and Jeffrey Liff. I'm so pleased that Jeff, who runs the Safety Differently Forum, has joined us in this white paper. The white paper is available at no cost from our website at learningteamscommunity.com or you can download the Kindle or purchase the book version on Amazon at very little cost. Now back to our show. The Brazilian community is doing some amazing activities in the New View space with community leaders like Hugo Ribeiro. Over the next three months, I want to share with you some more local stories about what is happening in the Brazilian community. On today's show, I welcome Rafael Santos from Sao Paulo, Brazil, who was diligently implementing HOP and learning teams in his organization. His focus on people development and using HOP and learning teams to drive continuous improvement is a great story to hear. Please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Rafael Santos. Well, welcome Rafael to the show. And of course it's afternoon for you and morning for us. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, I must say I'm a little anxious, a little nervous, but I was uh, very excited when I got, got invited. I'm a big fan of the show, big fan of your book and of your work, so it's great to be here. No, look, thank you. And, and think of this like a learning team. Think of it that you're participating in a, in a, in a sharing a story about your journey. And we're going to create a nice little, we're going to create a little area of psychological safety for you um, as, as we <laughs> move along. So. <laughs> But welcome to it. And um, I think once again, I reached out to you because always talking about different things, which I think is great. And I thought it was a great opportunity to hear from someone like yourself about your journey. In particular, what, what sort of attracted you to that sort of new view of safety? Where, where did that beginning come from? Well, I, it's, uh, it's been a f- not too long ago. Uh, I don't remember exactly the year. It must have been, you know, maybe three, four years ago. Uh, I've always wanted to be an engineer, so let me start with that. So uh, I got into engineering, electrical engineering. Uh, I got very little work done on that because I joined safety uh, right away when I was an intern still. And I just fell in love with uh, doing EHS. Well, safety at first, and then the whole the whole three letters I was using pharmaceuticals, so environment, health, and safety. Uh, 
So, and the reason I fell in love with it is because I saw uh, how the projects we managed, how the things we did actually improved how people uh, felt at work. So how they did their daily jobs, how it made easier, more comfortable or, or, or just uh, safer for them. Uh, but I was always somewhat, I guess, dissatisfied uh, with the way that uh, safety was uh, measured or tracked or reported. Uh, you know, everyone was always looking at the lost time uh, rates or whatever you call it, uh, anywhere in the world you are. And uh, it felt like I was always hitting a wall, you know. <laughs> I'm a runner, so I, uh, runners love that expression a lot, hit the wall. When you get to that mileage, you can't go further than that or faster than that pace. Uh, so I, I always felt like that. So whenever uh, I, I could I could do more, I could try different things, but it never changed the actual rate, um, which was already quite low. <laughs> and whenever something happened, it was a big issue, uh, even though maybe for the worker it was nothing else and uh, it was nothing uh, big. But then something almost happened, like a, a near miss. It could have killed someone, but no one got injured, so that's okay. Just, just, just write a report. So I was always, uh, I always had some. Uh, I always thought there, was, there must be something else. You got, we, there must be, there must be a, a different way to do things. And then this guy comes along, and the company I was working for at the time, uh, it's a pharmaceutical company. So uh, his name is Urban Boyer. He's a, he still is a mentor of mine. Uh, he was a vice president of DHS. So he came along, he was, you know, doing the tour, just uh, checking in, getting to know the company, getting to know the people. And he was, uh, he came along with this uh, different way of uh, looking at safety. And uh, he was, and he was the vice president. So, you know, his words might, might count for something. And I still remember the first uh, official meeting I had with Finn, a face-to-face meeting. He was talking about that we should look at weak signals, that we should be talking to people, that we should be discussing the day-to-day -day work, and uh, we should not be focusing on uh, lost time incidents only. Uh, and I'm, I remember he looking at me and he said, oh, Rafael, you seem to be smiling. What's what's that about? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know, but you just put into words what I was feeling inside, but I could never express. So. It was really good to see that. So he, he started mentoring me, like officially mentoring me. Uh, he still is a good friend. Uh, I still look at look, look up to him. We we both left the company now, uh, and he the first thing he uh, told me was to read Todd's uh, pre-accident investigations. And I I still use uh, a lot of the exercise that Todd uh, proposes in the book. Uh, so I use you know, count count from one to twenty-three. I always start my workshops with that. Uh, I use the Titanic story a lot when uh, uh, when I'm trying to get into the the new view. So and and that just got the ball rolling. And uh, here I am, I don't know, a few years later, a new company, going through the same roads, and uh, we developed quite a community in Brazil. So that's good. I reach out. I've met a lot of people, and uh, I'm sitting here <laughs> doing the, this podcast with you. I, so it, it's taking me uh, to good places. Oh, okay, absolutely. And once again, um, you know, I think the community in Brazil is doing such good work because it's having such good conversations as well. And, yeah. I, and I think it's really important. And I think that's part of that, that secret source that we have, particularly with um, hop and learning teams, 
It's just how to be curious and, and how to have better conversations. And, and I sort of sometimes wonder, um, is that skill, because it is a skill to have a good conversation, is it a skill that we've lost as safety people? Because we became so sort of technically focused. Yeah, that that's an interesting. Uh, I don't know if we've we've lost we lost it. Uh, at least at least here in Brazil, I, I know for a fact that we don't develop it as part of you know our, our professional development, if you want to call it like that. We don't have a continuous development framework for EHS professionals here in Brazil, so that's one thing. Um, sometimes I see uh, you know safety professionals being put in a pedestal. Or, or either they get put there or they put themselves in there mm -hmm. so no they are they are the officers they have uh, they have the badge and say they get people uh, arrested uh, you, want, you might say <laughs> quote unquote so i don't know and and yeah and one thing inter one interesting thing that happened with covid is that you know a lot of safety professionals were put in home office work uh, type work no, in remote working because they were not essential. They were not part of the operation. And it got me wondering uh, what happened there. Was, did we put ourselves in that situation that we're not part of operations, that we're actually just uh, you know stopping operations and not making them uh, happen? Uh, so I guess you can say that we, 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 we lost the, power, the skill to, to, to make good conversation. And that's one of the things I, I was talking about before that I always get got me dissatisfied with uh, how safety was managed because there was a lot of paper and not a lot of talking and I love talking to people. I love uh, being curious and understanding how they do their work, how they get by uh, the day-to-day -day struggle and we, we definitely need to develop that. So, so out of interest, just a little theme there. So you, your safety people are now having to work from home. So can I ask the question, has has the harm rates dramatically increased in your business because your safety people aren't present anymore? Nope. Wow. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a surprise, isn't it? That's, isn't that a, that's a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> surprise. So wearing that badge, not being able to have that badge, not being able to be present and and watching people and correcting people when they get it wrong has made no difference. No difference. No difference. I, I, you know, I was uh, developing workshops and trainings for people here. And, uh, you get a lot of statistics from Sidney Decker, from Todd, all of these guys. And I was, uh, I said, okay, let's come up with our own numbers. Because, it, you know, leaders, you know, managers might see this as something, you know, far removed from our scenario. So I was trying to find examples of bureaucracy, for example, in our own group. And I have a guy in my team, uh, he's uh, in the risk group, so he was put home for good reasons. He, sh he should have stayed, uh, he was, we, we wanted to keep him safe and healthy. He's now back to work, he got vaccinated. Uh, that's not the case. So uh, he did, there was this rule before I joined. So there was this rule that every new procedure or every uh, procedure that got reviewed no matter how uh, little of it was reviewed, needed to be signed off by uh, safety. So I said, okay, uh, how many procedures have you reviewed in the last year? So, and it was 
you know, we were very good at controls. We had a spreadsheet with the number of the, the procedures that were reviewed, who reviewed them, and uh, what type of inputs they, uh, they put in. So surprise, surprise, out of, I don't know, 700 procedures, we had something to say, something really just, uh, you know, really interesting to say or to change in 1% of them. Wow. So that's 99% uh, of inefficiency mm -hmm. in that job. Just uh, time thrown on the garbage. Yeah, yet, yet for people doing the work, for them to affect change, basically safety was the gatekeeper. Yep. Yeah. So effectively they had that. to get the permission of safety to bring about change. Exactly. Which is really interesting it, because you know, I've always thought as a risk professional, you know, I've always said to myself, you know, part of the role of safety is around assurance. Mm -hmm. And we're providing assurance for um, not only for the business, we're providing assurance for the board of the company okay. as well, the directors, and also providing assurance to the people that, that do the work. Yeah. And, and you know, I think people can relate to what assurance means because assurance can mean that that we, we're wanting to know why things go right. Mm -hmm. and, and we're wanting to know how to improve things so that don't go wrong. Yeah. Because that's what assurance is about. Uh, ultimately. Um, mm -hmm. Yet, and, and I understand, I understand why, why people want to focus on the negative. Um, and, and I always say to people, you know, um, if you could, if you could achieve zero harm, then what are you going to do next? <laughs> if you create this paradox of no harm, uh, what, what are you going to do next? Because, you know, the irony is, um, risk has to exist. You know, risk, risk is part of the thing that actually helps to drive us. But there's healthy risk and there's unhealthy risk. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and, and I've always asked the question, um, the potential for harm has to be present if risk is present. So if you don't want harm, you have to get rid of risk. But if we got rid of risk, we actually couldn't function. We could, we couldn't, couldn't do the work. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, it's a, we call it the paradox. We call it that paradox. It's an interesting situation. I think the difference here is, if 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 we think about risk in its true form, we're trying to, we're trying to reduce the amount of uncertainty that workers are having to face. Because if you think about it, when you, when you assess risk. There's always something remaining. So if, yeah. we, if we put in a control, if we mitigate something, there's something left over. Yeah. And and whatever left or, or over. something different. Yeah. 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 And whatever is whatever is left over, the organisation is having to work out. Um, are we accepting that? So we're accepting that whatever's left over is is what we have to deal with. Or yeah. are we having to tolerate what's left over? And, and to me, the difference here is accept means that we believe we can do no more 
Mm -hmm. Tolerate means that we want to do more and we're going to have a plan to work out how to do more as, as we go along. Yet whatever risk is left over, that's what workers face, not the organisation. Uncertainty is what workers face. So how do we help workers face uncertainty? Because you've already you've already done your controls. So what's left over? And I think that's the interesting thing. And you know, I'm really pleased that you talked about weak signals, because <laughs> weak, weak signals exist in the uncertainty. But I think the problem here is, how does organisation get to see them? Because there's so much noise because there are lots of weak signals that make sense. There's lots of things that are happening all the time. How, how do we make sense of it? And, yeah. I, and I think that's that's the challenge. And, and I think that was one of the key themes at Eric Honagel's um, symposium the other week was around that sort of weak signals. How, how do we make sense of it? Yeah, that's that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> well, look at it. it, 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 it and it's interesting because uh, when you talk about that with, with leadership, uh, sometimes they think it's easy, right? They say, oh, no, you just uh, you make a choice. Uh, yeah, that's easy for us here sitting, you know, on the blunt side. Uh, yeah. Telling people that, no, you have the power to stop your job. They don't even, <laughs> they might, sometimes they don't even know what's, what's going to happen. Uh, 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 look, I, I, we have the saying that, that workers want to be as effective and efficient as they can be yeah i think organizations really overplay the fact that um that that workers can solve everything i mean you know workers want to solve what's what's within their own domain if that makes sense yes they're they're not managers (laughs) They're, they're having to live with what they've got and um, it's really interesting. Um, we've been having these recent conversations. Uh, more and more leadership want workers to be problem solvers. So the issue there is that if, if we if we want all our workers to be problem solvers, then how does problem solving and reporting come together? Because if we if we create people to being these problem solvers, and I think problem solving is really is a valuable um, skill for us to have, then yeah. why would I report anything? Because I'm always right. fixing. I'm always fixing something. Make sense? I'm <laughs> I'm fixing your problem. That's interesting. I had a conversation the other day about that with uh, with my team. We, you know, we have this. We used to have this near miss reporting system. I still do, but. Uh, we sort of changed it uh, now to a more of a communication uh, system, so people, you know, not just uh, talk about near miss, but they they have proposals, they have ideas, uh, they can say it there, and it goes for environment things as well. So they have ideas on how to save energy or other other things. And one of my guys was was complaining that oh, well, they they just don't report it, they don't put it in the system. I'm like, okay, why would they put it if they have the power to resolve it? No, oh, no, they they. They have a cheer meeting, and in the cheer meeting, they talk to the mechanic, and the mechanic uh, goes and solves it. So there you go. Why would you want to report that? 
how are we helping them by reporting it? Yeah, because we want to measure it. We want to measure it. Yes, we, we want to measure it. Yeah, we want a nice chart going up and saying, "Oh, here's the number of yeah, new cases we have prevented." Look at all these great ideas that have, that have, that have happened. Yeah, look, and, and I perfectly understand because um, uh, it, it, it's interesting. If, if you could imagine, I, I think um, you know. Uh, you know, both New Zealand and Australia have this thing called the regulator paradox. If, if the health and safety regulator achieves what they want to achieve, which is lowering harm rates, will will that organization then have less people? Does it need to have all these people? Does it make, make sense? And, and this is the, the issue yeah. with, with measurement, that we, we basically say that it's not acceptable that X number of people get hurt every year, and this is what we're doing to try and reduce that. Then if we do reduce that, do you need the same amount of resource for that? So I, I sometimes ask myself, is measurement part of that justification that organizations want or department want to justify their existence? Because people ask the question, well, why, why do you need all these people? And I think that's that yeah. paradox of, of switching it round to saying, why are people successful? And that's what we're trying to do. Yet, yet things like um, uh, lean and those things in, in quality have been doing that for 70, 80 years. <laughs> if that makes sense. Because they've been focused on how to empower, how to empower the work teams to self-improve. Mm-hmm. And and how to get them to share those um, improvements, those stories with others, and and I think that's an interesting question that you've raised, Raphael. Because um, are we asking people to make judgment by asking them to report something, or should we just be asking people to share their story? And it's really interesting. Um, we, we did a podcast with um, with Jeffrey Liff uh, a little while ago, and, and we've got a new white paper coming out shortly about everyday learning. And we had this conversation about the four Ds, the four Ds, yep. dumb, different, difficult, dangerous. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just getting workers to to reflect or think back about a situation that didn't make sense to them or a situation that was different to what they'd normally encounter or a situation you know that was that something they were doing was more difficult than, than it normally would be and, and i think the ultimate goal there was for not for workers to say what went well what didn't go well because that's all about judgment yeah. it's simply about getting them to actually share that story and and to think about when they encounter things you know is it dumb difficult different or dangerous because that concept in the head is what allows them to stand back and and think about it. If that makes sense, and, and that's, the more they can share, the more they can share their story, the more that that pattern in their head starts to to happen. Starts to come up. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that they only connect the dangerous part to safety. 
So when it's different, dumb or, or, or difficult, sometimes they don't connect to safety. We're trying to, we're trying this uh, new thing with uh, leaders here and getting them to go out and talk to people. Mm-hmm. And they, they, uh, one of the things is uh, we ask them to talk to employees. So when is your work difficult? Uh, when, is frust- when is it frustrating? And sometimes, and, and, and they come up with, uh, you know, things. so this, it's uh, it's been a, a, a inter, uh, an important part of our, of our journey here. So getting leaders to go out and talk. And when you say, uh, you know, safety dialogues, they immediately think, well, let's get the whole shift together and talk about, you know, slips, trips and falls. And no, no, you're going to go down, you're going to talk to one person. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're not finding risks. You're not trying to correct that person. You're not telling him to, to wear PPE. You just you know, have a conversation, have a real conversation. Try to understand how the work is done. And one thing that we tell them is do not correct people. Do not you know, talk about uh, what's not going well. Of course, if, if you see an immediate uh, hazard, which uh, you shouldn't because you know employees uh, know, usually know better. Uh, so. The, you, Get it, get it sorted out afterwards, but get the conversation going on a more positive side. And then reflect on your learnings, uh, talk, uh, and let us know what, you, what, you have, what you've learned. So we got uh, two, two very interesting feedbacks, which were very regret. One is that that has nothing to do with safety. <laughs> so you've captured a lot of things, but that has nothing to do with safety, uh, or not, not that that has nothing to do with safety, but what has that to do with safety? So sometimes people struggle sometimes to make a connection of you know a job being frustrating to mm-hmm. it being hard dose or to it leading to uh, an incident. And the other one is that uh, on the reflection side, we ask them open questions. So we yeah. ask them things like, uh, "What have you learned about the job?" Uh, what can you do to improve the job? Uh, where does the team need us? Or how does the team need leadership? And they, one very recurrent feedback was that it was hard to, to write it down. It was hard to answer those questions. Yep. Because they were in a mindset oh, that let's just find risks and let's just report how many risks we found, how many things we corrected. And, uh, when we we were reporting, we were showing the number of reflections, the the, the recurring themes, uh, the things that people talked about. So leadership, when you go one one level up uh, in leadership, they want actions. They want an action plan. They want to put down an action plan. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was, it, it's it's a long road. We haven't we have we're not through it yet, but it's. Uh, it's, it takes a lot of discuss, discussion and convincing and talking that it, maybe we won't have an action plan right now, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of systems to track action plans. Yeah. We have a lot of uh, we have Kappas, uh, no corrective actions, preventive actions. Uh, we have the NIMBYS reporting system. Let them do their job, and we will use them if we need it. Now it's time for something else. Now it's time to create trust with workers, so they. When they, you know, find those things, when they have those uh, moments where they are uncertain, they can raise their hands because they trust that someone will talk to them and will support them. And it's time for us to learn. And, and I think we it's, are... no, look, I, I agree. And it's natural for leadership to want to fix things. 
because that's their that's job. That's the, that's that's what they that's what they do. That's what they get trained to do. I I like to talk to leaders about understanding that there's this difference that that when we're trying to manage risk, we're either trying to put things in place that are trying to control or mitigate the hazard and how it can cause harm, you know, how it releases energy. Think about Todd and the and the sticky. You need the energy release, so we're trying to we're trying to do that. And then we're also trying to do some things that that are trying to influence the worker at the same time. And and I always ask this question. Um, it's 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 fixable. I can fix the hazard. That the hazard is binary. So so if there's if there's an issue, that for instance, um, uh, some piece of moving plant or equipment can can strike or crush or you know release electricity or hydro whatever it case may be i can fix that because it's something that is physical but with people and i and i would argue this quite strongly with people um i don't think they're fixable i think the answer here is they're understandable because a person a person can um, change themselves because that, that's up to the person and the person changes themselves through better knowing and better understanding and, and, and better perspectives so is our, is our job to help them to better understand rather than tell them what to do because I'm still waiting for that sign that says do not cross the line <laughs> no, I'm, still waiting, I'm still waiting for that sign to actually do something and, and it'd be really interesting that uh, if we could put a metric on that sign to work out how how it actually aids to success if we put a metric on it and we monitored it if we took the same approach now we'd probably get rid of every single sign <laughs> 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 yeah, well, Dave, uh, no, this, uh, Dave Proven and Drew Ray have uh, quite an interesting podcast on that, on uh, well, warnings and signs for safety. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I think what's useful, if, if I think about, you know, I, I do quite a bit of work in, in, in safety around machinery because it, it has a lot of harm rates. We, we, if I think of the sign, I, I like to say that part of that signage, there's two parts to it. One is it's it's there to inform or make someone aware of something. And, and, and I think if the sign is there to inform them um, where the hazard is and the type of hazard, then that's great. It's, it's, it's useful to say that this is a, a crush point or this is a share point and that, that stuff, or this is something that's really, really hot. That's okay. Because that's simply telling us about the presence of, of, of something. And sometimes you don't see it, so you need, you need yeah, someone it, to tell. Yeah, so, and, and that's what that sign is there to do. Having a sign saying, don't put your hand in, <laughs> is different. So, so I think the question I always ask is, in, in machinery safety, we, we call these things um, complementary controls. Yep. They're there to complement something else. They're not. They're not so there to, to be a control itself. Yeah, you have the guard, you have the interlock, plus you have the wall. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, I love a good machine where it's got the traffic light to say, you know, green, 
orange and red. Okay. And no. every machine has a traffic light. Okay. But what's what's really important is that when that machine when that machine changes its state, there needs to be something that tells someone the state has changed. Yeah. And that might be a buzzer, it might be a siren, it might be something else to simply tell something. At that time the state has changed. Because everything is flashing. <laughs> and, and everything's flashing. And, and sometimes me, I never see the flashing because it's always flashing. It's always flashing. Always and it can flashing. be quite confusing, right? So is green like uh, safe or is green that I, 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 don't, I don't. Oh, yeah. What does it? What does it mean? What does it mean? Um, and that's why we have the saying, you know, em embrace the red, fear the green. Fear the green. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because what does green mean? Exactly. For machinery, yeah. the machine is in its normal operating state. That doesn't mean it's safe. It just says it's in normal mode. Normal. But normal could be that it's still got an exposed blade that cut your fingers off. You'll never know. You, well, you, well, you'll only find out. Once you you'll only out. find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Signs are an interesting thing. Here, here in Brazil, there's a law. So I, I need to think whether it's Brazil or some states. For a fact, in uh, in some states, uh, you get to an elevator, any elevator, like a, 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 a people elevator, and you you go, you you have you have the buttons. You want to go up, or you want to go down, or to any floor. There's always this sign that says, "Make sure the elevator is in the floor you are at before you jump on it." Wow. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, is I was always, what the door does or the gate in front does? That exactly. The... And I was, I, was, I, was a, I was always curious about it because there is an, an actual law. You, you, there is a reference right. to a law. Uh, uh, absolutely. And I, I, the other day I found out, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing climbing now. So, yep. um, and uh, I got this uh, theoretical lessons before going up on the mm -hmm. wall, going up on the rocks. And the teacher sent me a, a workbook for a lot of accidents that, that had happened uh, in Rio de Janeiro. It's where I'm from. And there was this accident that happened in a hotel where a lady fell down on an, an elevator shaft. And wow. that's why they passed out the law that you must have a sign in every elevator. Wow. Telling people to make sure the elevator is on the floor. <laughs> wow. R rather than a gate that can't be opened. Rather than get the gates the into on the, the floor. <laughs> But it looks no different. Yeah. How often do you see a door and the sign says push or pull? Push or pull. Yeah. And I have actually seen guards on machines with both push and pull. Yeah. I'm like, what is that about? What, what, which the, one on, is the it? on the same door. So yeah. I got close to it and it was like push to close, pull to open. Wow. <laughs> but it was I really, always like really to say <laughs> that if it's got a handle, that's if it's got a handle, clear. it's a pull. If it's got a flat plate, it's a push. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, look. Um, and, and once again, I, I, I think you know, um, if we if we roll it back, all these things are designed to support people when they are curious. But if they're not curious, it has no meaning to them. And and the sign's always there. Yeah. And and. And how does the sign give context? So, so like um, we've been doing a piece of work recently where we're we're developing some uh, metrics for um, the new view of safety. 
yeah. Um, but we're linking that need to be able to report an activity and how to link that activity to the narrative of the activity. Because the quantitative component is simply a measurement of, of a number, but behind that number is what gives its meaning. Yeah. So how do we link quantitative and qualitative together? So, so the example is we went out and we did, um, we, we, we had, you know, uh, uh, 240 inputs for the month. Well, that's great. That's a number. That's an activity. Okay. And I can say, and compared to last month, we're up 20%. Okay. Or we're down 30%. That's just a number. Yeah. But the meaning comes from what were the themes from those activities? What were the key things that were coming through from workers? How have those things changed over time? And in the new white paper coming out with Todd, we also explore the sentiment of what was said by the workers. So when we're capturing their stories, because the stories have to come from the workers using, using their own words, mm -hmm. not the words that you write down, because you, you're writing down filtered information. We want the words from exactly. the people. But that story that they share with us, in that story, that sentiment tells us whether they're coping or not. So if the sentiment is positive, it would basically tell us that they're able to cope or deal with the current system. Okay, so the example there could be that, that the theme was um, a lack of resources, people having to work with less people than before. And, and that's a classic one with COVID, isn't it? Okay, yep. don't, don't have the same size work teams. Every day. Yeah. But the language that they use, one, one work team, by expressing their language, is telling us that they're coping. Another work team, by the language they're using, will be telling us that they're not coping because their sentiment would be negative. So we're really interested in exploring not only what people say, but also how they say it. Because that story and that sentiment now gives us a whole different picture. Yeah. So linking the narrative, so linking the activity, the number of things, linking the narrative, and, and, and we call that, you know, creating the themes of the weak signals is another thing, but also the sentiment of that is something else. Now I'm anxious to read that that paper. Yeah, because really because, anxious to, to read it. Yeah, because we we believe that those things could actually help us to look for the presence of capacity. I'm sure you can. Um, yeah, it's you've kind of just described what we are what we are struggling to to do with you know the the, the safety dollars that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. How, how do you make sense of everything that's being said? So for, for example, for now, we have over 250 of them. And, right. I, and I'm sure that, you know, 250 times the leaders learned something or did something and it was small increments and they're all positive and everything. Yeah. But so I feel like, 
there's so so much there that that we could make sense and, and pick up the themes and patterns and things that we could be doing for the company as a whole and i think and, and what we've found in the work that we've been doing and we've been doing this for a year now um is that um there, there's this we, there's this thing we call it the forest from the trees that that as humans it's difficult for us to stand back and see how things start to form patterns of occurrence or, or just patterns of information it's, it's hard for us to do that yeah it's no different everyone has a risk register and in that risk register is something that's quite ugly something that will kill you okay um and it's in there somewhere but we can't see it because it's not been brought to our attention so so we call it forest or the trees i can't stand back i know yeah. i know there's a forest there somewhere but i can't see it um and that's where we think um ai technology is very powerful to do that and that's the stuff that we've, we've been uh, working on is how to use um, ai technology to do that if, if you think about what people like amazon and google is really good at it's good at looking at the themes of what you enjoy and presenting content to you based on those things and they have Again, mastered you that. Your mind they, have, that. <laughs> they have mastered it. Okay. They do. They so do. for Todd, it's Tim Tams, a type of biscuit. He loves to get <laughs> into that. Okay. Um, which which we make down here, you see. So I'm I'm about to send him a big box of Tim Tams for Christmas. Um, but but where machines aren't good, or where AI isn't good, where humans are really good, as humans are really good, then at reading the narrative that sits behind those things. And humans are then good at making sense of that narrative. So I can I can say to you, Raphael, there have been of these 200 things that workers have shared with us, there's this big theme about mask wearing coming through. And of that mask wearing, 40% of people are, are, are sharing the stories in a negative way. 60% are sharing their stories in a positive way. Then what you can do is that you can then look at some of that narrative of the negative and the positive. And as a human, you can make sense of that. AI can't. AI technology can't do that. Yeah, um, and, and from that, and, and, then, and then once you see a theme, once you see a theme, once you read the narrative that helps you understand that theme, then there's an opportunity for you to run a learning team to get in there and create better understanding. Because the improvement comes from the learning team. The improvement doesn't come from the data that's been presented to you. So I can't I can't fix that. Like, like if, I, if, if, if it came back and said, you know, 120 people have reported um, that mask wearing is a problem. Management will say, we'll go out and fix it. Get, get a warning that, out saying that you must wear a mask. Then yeah, that's done. Correct. <laughs> a new mandate. Um, let's put smiley faces on the front of the mask. Okay? The front of the mask. Yeah, the front of the mask, because, because the virus doesn't like a smiley face. It'll keep away from a smiley face. So, so a, a, a learning team then helps you to better understand why people feel that way 
or why people why people don't have that same issue that other people have and that learning team then gives it the power for us to share that story and for workers to through that through that notion of problem identification and problem understanding that workers then actually start to solve the problem themselves and and once again that if you want to call it a fix <laughs> that fix of self-improvement you can measure that because you can go back yeah. to the group later on and ask them did it work as intended and if it didn't work as intended then either improve it or remove it Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com. Support the authors of the practice of learning teams. Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.